0: Welcome to What's So Funny, a comedy podcast where we talk about some of the most influential and controversial comedians from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Sit back, relax, and get ready to laugh. Here's your host, Dave Schweinstein.
1: Hi, welcome back to What's So Funny. I'm your host, Dave Schwenson, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Tom McGallis. Hey, Dave. What's going on, man? Well, Tom, (laughs) let me tell you what's going on. Today is a very, very special episode. I know. What's so funny. I'm pretty excited about this one. I know. This one's
0: near and dear to your heart.
1: Well, yes, it is. And I will have to tell our listeners a little something about that when we start here. But our episode today, a very special episode of What's So Funny. It's going to be the history of the Improv Comedy Club. Now, I hate to call it like a history of the improv because that would take Episodes. (laughs) I mean, it would take a long time to cover the entire history of this legendary comedy club. But I do want people to know that I am very close. I consider myself to be part of the improv family. Actually, I started working at the New York City Improv in the mid 80s. I was the manager of the club and uh, moved on to the Hollywood Improv where I was an assistant to Bud Friedman and what they called the talent coordinator for the club. And even in the years since, I've been manager of the Cleveland Improv. I like to say I'm the only person from coast to coast to coast. Uh, Managed the New York club on the Atlantic coast, the Hollywood club talent coordinator on the Pacific coast, and managed the Cleveland Improv on the North Coast, which is Lake Erie. Yeah, man. And uh but <laughs> that's <laughs> as, great. Then <That's>, as some <laughs> listeners might know, I do comedy workshops and I do those affiliated with the improv. My main workshops are at the Cleveland Improv and the Chicago Improv, and I've done them at the Tampa Improv and different locations. So wow,
0: it's legendary, it's amazing. As we a lot of us know,
1: it launched tons of great legends. It was the original comedy club, now you know this. I'm gonna talk about Bud Friedman, but I'm also gonna talk about Silver Friedman. Silver Saunders, actually, was Bud Friedman's wife wife at the time, who both started the uh, New York club together, and then they went separate their separate ways, where Silver was in New York and Bud was in Los Angeles. I worked with both of them. Oh, so Silver stayed with the New York club. Yes, she stayed with the New York club, and then Bud was at the Hollywood club. So I'm going to talk about both of them, because I work closely with both Mm -hmm. of them, and I owe both of them a lot, I'll tell you right now. Matter of fact, here's my feeling on this. I would not be the host. Of what's so funny, if it hadn't been for Silver Saunders and Bud Friedman. And I wouldn't Look. be here either. So we would, <laughs> we, what the heck? Look,
0: I owe him something, and I don't even know him. <laughs> now, Silver and Bud are both still with us in 2020. Yes. That's good. Yes. They're living healthy, long
1: lives, which is fantastic. And, and the uh, improv continues. I guess there's 25 of them right now? The, the improv, you know, I've lost track of them. But yes, they are a franchise club around the country. And when I do my workshops, it is my little stage time that I get to go up and uh, introduce the, uh, the workshop comedians I, I work with. I always say, uh, I make it clear right up front, the improv is the number one club in the country. Don't argue with me about it, period. <laughs> it's done. And I say, if you want to see the comedians that you see on television, on Comedy Central. It used to be so much like The Tonight Show and different things. You go to the improv. There are all these franchises around the country. You go see them. But let's go back. Let's go in in the way back machine to the beginning of this club, the improvisation. The club opened in 1963. It was was a winter night. I think we're pretty sure it was in February. But even before that, it started with Bud and Silver, Silver was a, uh, a very interesting person, by the way. I got along great with Silver. She could quite be a, very... Quite a talent. She's an actress yes. herself.
0: Very talented.
1: She Broadway. was on Broadway. She was, I think, How to Succeed in Business Without Even Trying. Some other, you know, she was a lot of heavy Fiorello. Duty shows. Fiorello, the musical. So very Broadway, very show business. And Bud had been an advertising executive. I know he lived up in Boston. And it was something that he really... And he went to college for it, and he was an advertising guy, but he didn't like it. It's not what he wanted to do. Here's the whole thing. wasn't his passion. He wanted to be in show business, and his goal was to be a producer, a Broadway producer. Guy in charge, the guy in charge. You know, the one who raises makes the money and, and makes all the money and and uh, produces a Broadway show. And the funny thing is—and I've read Bud's book, by the way. Bud has a book out. I've read it about three times. It's an oral history about the improv. has all these famous people. It's a must-read for anyone interested in the comedy industry. But he um, didn't know anything about producing a Broadway show. <laughs> you know? But you know what? A lot of people that get into this show business, or especially the comedy industry— Nobody knows what they're doing. Stumble into it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Everybody's got, everybody's a little bit crazy. I'll put it that way. I would say that. Yeah. (laughs) He quit his job as an advertising executive in Boston, came down to New York City to be a Broadway producer. But he met Silver, uh, who was on Broadway already as a chorus girl, and they hit it off. They were dating and. When he would go out with the cast of her show afterwards, they'd all go out, like, say, for drinks or dinner, because it's, you know, show business, Broadway, comedy, comedy, everything. It's a whole different lifestyle. People have to understand that. You live at night. For many, many years, I've described my schedule as being a vampire, because I go to work at the improv club at 7 o'clock at night. I wouldn't get home till 4 in the morning, and sometimes we go out afterwards for something to eat, so it'd be 6 o'clock. You're rolling in, and it's a whole different lifestyle. Well, plus
0: you're on a big high after you've performed, and all the adrenaline, and it's one in the morning. You can't go go to
1: sleep, so you want to go hang out, do something. Well, that's what they were doing. They were going after the Broadway shows closed. They were going out for dinner, drinks, that sort of thing. And Bud overheard the other actors in the show saying, wow, you know, in Chicago, we go to this place, and we get to go up and sing. Or if we're in Philadelphia, maybe we get up, and there's a club we go to. We can have coffee or whatever, something to eat. We can get up and perform if we want to. And Bud realized there wasn't anything like that. In New York City,
0: especially is isn't that strange. Isn't that strange? There'd
1: be nothing like that in New York City at the time. The Broadway district, where all the Broadway theaters are, there was no place there that they could they could go to to Sardi's, restaurants, hang out, but also get up and perform and do stuff. These are all performers. These are actors. They are singers. They want to get up. That's what gave Bud the idea. That's what planted the seed. Yes. He yes. said, you know what? They're talking about doing this in other towns. I can't believe they're not doing this in New York City. So wow. he mapped out an area of New York. And you got to think at the time, too, I, he quit his job. So I don't think he had much money. <laughs> I don't think anyone did. And so they were kind of looking. New, the, New York at that time was pretty seedy around that area. It was getting kind of, you know, they call it Hell's Kitchen for a reason. He was just about ready to give up. I think he was going to open something way downtown by the village and just happened to see a sign for a Vietnamese restaurant on the corner of 44th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue, closer to 9th Avenue, that had closed down, and it was for rent. And he said, this is it. This is it. It's walking distance to all the theaters. And so uh, he got seem, the lease. Seemed
0: perfect. Yeah. yeah,
1: he rented it and really had to work. So there's funny stories I've often heard. I mean, it was flooded out of there. There are all kinds of stuff going on at this old place, but they pulled it together within a few months and opened up as the Improvisation. And the reason they got the name Improvisation, and Bud has this in his book, it's where the singers could come in again, 1963, 1964, and improvise. And he improvised putting it together. And isn't that where the uh,
0: legendary, the iconic brick wall started? Because they didn't have money to get uh, drywall or. You sheetrock, whatever they called it then.
1: Yeah, when when Bud pulled the uh, old, I think it was red paneling or something he had on there for the Vietnamese restaurant, or mirrors, that kind of thing, when he pulled it off, there was this brick wall behind it, and they couldn't afford drywall. There you go. So they kind of polished that up a little bit, cleaned that up, and that now the brick wall is associated with stand-up comedy. <laughs> yeah, Everybody's got a brick yeah.
0: wall. It's the, <laughs> it's the image. The brick wall. The brick
1: wall with the mic. Yeah, there it is. That's the logo. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think if you look at our pictures from What's So Funny on the website, we're probably standing by a brick wall. I think, yeah. you know, because it just means comedy. <laughs> it
0: could be a, a you know, a drywall with a microphone if, if you would add some money. That's funny. And I'm sure the comics helped probably work on it. People that, not the comics, but the performers
1: there. And Bud probably did a lot of the work himself. I think Bud did, yeah, most of the work. And, and uh, But even like, you know, Silver and her friends from the Broadway shows came where They did painting. They painted. They cleaned. They they put in the booths. All this kind of stuff. And I think they had, they wound up having a space that held about 74 seats, something like that, 75 seats. And no liquor license because he couldn't afford the liquor license. So it was just coffee. And uh, they had some Inexpensive, you know, food, hamburgers, stuff like that. They opened for business as a music showcase place. Mm-hmm. Not even a showcase. It was just to blow off steam. They wouldn't even have any customers. I don't think till about eleven thirty at night, eleven o'clock after the Broadway shows closed and everybody changed. They come over. If you wanted to get up and sing, you could. Just to, you know, sing, talk, hang out. It was just a hangout joint. He'd never didn't book any acts to sing. So he realized sometimes there'd be no one who wanted to perform or whatever. So he hired singing waitresses. The first night was, I guess, hugely successful. I wish I could name the celebrities that came in, but they were all from the Broadway shows and they got up and sang. It was just a hit. And then when when did it become? Who started the comedy?
0: Who said the first comedian?
1: There was a comic named Dave
0: Astor. Aster, and he, and he was he was noted at the time. He was a working guy; everyone knew,
1: right? I, you know, again, I have a hard time finding anything about him, quite honestly. But had mentioned <laughs> his name to me when yeah. I wrote the book, and I'd heard, and I went online to look for anything by Dave Aster, and I really couldn't find anything.
0: Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, it was before, you know, it's before internet, before they were really there's really
1: uh, footprints on people. You know, there's probably no video on the guy, or or I don't he know. I record. I, if I read somewhere he had been on the Ed Sullivan show. He had done some things. Bud called him a comics comic, which means that's the kind of guy that maybe has some inside jokes or talk about the industry that the comics would understand better. He came in, he was performing, again, down the village. He had a regular gig down there opening for some musician or something. And when he came up, you know, I always said, even like when I started my own club in New York, people say, how do you do that? All you got to do is put up a microphone, a stand and put a spotlight on a little stage and comics just show up. <laughs> Well, you
0: know, you you need a place, stage time, right? You need a place to work out your stuff. Yes. And it started supplying that, you know, that need to go somewhere and work
1: on your craft. You know, when you think about it, before the improv, which was the very first comedy club, I mean, really to focus on comedy, and it didn't start out that way, the only place comedians could work before that were, say, up in the Catskills, those hotels they had up there for the, uh, you know, summertime... People from New York City to go up there. They had vaudeville, which are the old, you know, baggy pants comics, you know, with uh, uh, take my wife, please kind of jokes. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the ones who got really famous had to play big theaters, you know, like like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and, and Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Not Bing Crosby, Different but uh, Jack Benny. Yeah. yeah, they were playing like theaters. But there was no place where they could really go, the new comics especially, to work out their own material. Because you got to understand, too, those other old comics I've talked about, they all had writers and stuff. Yeah, you know, so they were reading. They were pretty much yeah, the they writers. Yeah. This turned out to be a place where young comedians, new comedians who wanted to write their own material could come in and try it out first before they had important auditions or, or whatever. So yeah, when um, Dave Astor showed up, I think Robert Klein was the next one who was a big influence on the club, came in. And then they all started coming in. And it gradually became a comedy club.
0: You could say that, Bud, the improv pretty much that was the beginning of modern stand-up. I would say so. That launched it, ushered it in, a new a new generation and revolution in some ways.
1: Well, they did not invent stand-up comedy, okay? It's not like anybody invented no. the wheel there. However, it was the place where comics could come in and work on their act. It was under the radar. They could try new things. They could get experience on stage. And, you know, they still kept the, uh, the singers, the musicians coming in. Matter of fact... One of the early singers of the Improv regular was Bette Midler. Yeah, Bud became her manager. He didn't think she was very good initially, because I heard I heard him talk about
0: that. He said, "I think he said she was terrible initially, and then got good." But it was like initially he thought,
1: "Wow, this is." <laughs> but like everybody, come on, Dave, who's great when you're yeah. first
0: starting? It takes time. Well, that's time. it.
1: You know, and that's where they had to, you know, get their stage time, I mean, get their experience. But yeah, I remember But I think he went to some other club and saw her and said, whoa, she's gotten really good. And uh, but he yeah, became her manager good. and he really helped break her. I mean, I think he got her on the Merv that's Griffin show and the Tonight Show, the different things. And he really got her, he was her, her manager. And uh, I think her piano player at that time was uh, Barry Manilow. Manilow, He was a yeah. piano, piano player at the Improv. Dustin Hoffman was a piano player at the Improv. And there's also a very famous story of Liza Minnelli coming to, she was a regular at the improv watching the shows. And she went up to Bud Friedman one night and said, can I please perform? My daddy's here. My daddy's never seen me perform. Well, that was the famous director, Vincent Minnelli. Yeah, And awesome. Bud that's was always awesome. a little bit celebrity starstruck. And he's like, wait a minute, Vincent Minnelli's in the office here? Yes, of course, we'll put Liza on stage. Wow. And when she came back, she brought her mother, Judy Garland.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. She didn't, did she
1: sing? Did she yes. go up on the stage? Yeah, she, she hit the stage. On stage
0: of course she did. There's yes. a stage there. What are you yes. going to
1: do? You, you know, that's what you do, right? Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli performed together at the Improv. Yeah. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons.
0: Think behind the music for the stuff we love.
1: Check out our website at Two DesignersWalkintoabar.com.
0: And listen wherever you get your
1: podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So I mean there's all those kind of famous stories of people who are just dropping in. And this is still the early 60s, you know? The mid-60s. Or even a couple of the Beatles were in there, but they didn't perform, but they were in the club. Same spot though. He did he stay in the same spot? Yes, forever. Could- Because I I'd seen it
0: I'd gone there in the eighties and I guess it was the same spot right yes okay yeah probably didn't change much
1: no I mean that brick wall was there from the beginning and I think next door was probably I think it was a liquor store or something they took that over also by the time I arrived there again the the club had been in business for almost twenty five years by the time I got there the bar was next door on the corner that's where all the comedians would hang out and the showroom was next door. You walk through just a short little hallway, and you're in the showroom, and there was the original brick wall. And I'm telling you, what atmosphere this place had. The comics used to laugh, say, this thing is held together by duct tape, you know, (laughs) masking tape and rubber bands and stuff. But it it was just wonderful. It was the New York City comedy scene, dingy kind of club that was just That's the best place
0: for comedy, man. It's like,
1: you know, I, I, I
0: always wonder... You know, I've been to Vegas. You go to other, like, glitzy rooms, and you think, this, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're put on a show, but it's got to be a little slicker. It feels like it's pushing you to be a little tighter. But in you're in a dingy little comedy place like that, you feel like you could take some risks, play. Yes. And, you know, and they, a lot of them did, you know. I mean, from later on through the 70s, we know the kind of people that started working there from Andy Kaufman, all his people, that were taking risks and playing around.
1: It was sort of like a classroom. It was a lot of hanging out. And again, I don't want to skip over so many periods because I wasn't there, you know, in the late 60s, 70s. I, I wasn't there yet. And so, I, you know, I heard all the stories of the comedians who were around. and Of course, all their pictures were up on the wall. And so many of them, you know, worked there. Again, Richard Pryor was one of Bud's favorites. And there's Pryor coming in, in the mid-60s, and he's developing his act on stage at the Improv. Some of the others we talked about, Lily Tomlin, there's a famous story that she was. She wanted to get in with Bud. Yeah. He was already making a name for himself. So she went over to like one of the Broadway theaters where they had a limousine outside. She had an audition that night, and can you imagine auditioning Lily Tomlin? I mean, think about that. Anyway, she was nervous about her audition. She paid a, a limo driver like ten bucks to keep driving around the block until they saw Bud outside the club looking for her. Then the limo pulled up. He got out. The driver opened the door, and Lily Tomlin got out of the back to let Bud think she was somebody. He passed the for that audition that night, and she didn't tell him until months later, but she did. <laughs> it. Yeah, I do a little showbiz, a little setup there. It's, yeah. uh, it's funny, but I did read somewhere,
0: um, and you would probably know better. You're in the, the, the family, and you know this, but that Bud at one point had said he liked the comedy scene more than the music scene because he would watch comedians develop and refine their jokes and their material, whereas musicians would come in and just sing the songs. And it was the same all the time.
1: Yes, and they would uh, come in and sing yeah. a popular song and it sounded just like it had before. And the thing with the comedians, they would go up and they were trying to develop and give different punchlines or writing new material, doing things. And and really, if you, if you read Bud's book and if you have an opportunity ever to meet him and talk with him, this comedy thing came out of nowhere. It was just right place, right time. and oh my gosh, this is what I really like and what I meant to do, and I didn't see it coming. Did Bud ever offer, like, hey, you know what? I noticed you tried this. You should maybe try that. Did he ever offer that to a stand-up, to somebody you know, working? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes. He was very encouraging. I don't have any specific examples. And I'll say Silver was the same way. I don't want to forget about Silver at the New York Club, because when I came there, she was the one totally in charge, and I learned so much from her. I really did. To me, being a man, you know, I went behind the scenes, okay? I'm a behind-the-scenes guy. Yeah, right. And when I I ran my own small club in New York City for only about six months, and then I got introduced to Silver at the New York Improv, really within two weeks, I was the manager of the club. It's a funny story. I'll tell you real quick. I got hired as a bartender on a Sunday night. She says, could you tend bar? And I said, sure. <laughs> okay, whatever. So I stood behind a bar, and it was only, I didn't make any money. I do financially, this is not going to be great, because it was a bunch of comics hanging around the bar. They're not going to tip. <laughs> yeah, and right. at the end of my shift, I was counting the money, and I was, exactly. I was right on. You know, thank you, college degree. Finally came in handy. She said, oh, would you like to be assistant manager? Because the assistant manager was leaving the next day. And I said, sure. So, went back the next day, which was a Monday. I was assistant manager. And within two weeks, I don't know what happened with the manager of the club or something. I don't know if they had a little tiff. I don't know. But she turned around to me and said, you're the manager of the club. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So, it was all within two weeks. The comics used to say, my gosh, Dave, you must have mixed a heck of a drink that Sunday night. (laughs) (laughs) So then I was there. So I was with her and really in training. How do you run the how do you book the shows? How do you run the shows? How do you manage all these things the New York City improv? And she showed me.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, you know, you're
1: learning right, because they've already
0: been through it. Now this is already 20 something years. They've got it down. You know oh, yeah. it's it's refined. It's 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 working pretty well even though it, in the 80s that was the comedy boom. And then the 90s was the fallout. You know, a lot of businesses were lost. A lot of comedy clubs closed.
1: Well, I was there in the you know, mid to late 80s at the New York. And so even in, on, on the auditions, because Silver would audition the comedians the first Sunday of every month. We had a lottery system. And I was, I was part of that. I got to watch how it worked. And the cool thing, too, is I got to really hang out with the comedians. Now, here's the thing. I was management. <laughs> and I will tell the ones who know me they'll remember I did a music act at the Improv I'm not going to say it was great but it got me some stage time it also got me some extra money because I said sure, it's got a raise give me, two, <laughs> give me two shots a week you know yeah. to play with the band and I had a lot of fun with that we called that's it the awesome. music wars that's awesome yeah other times I was managing the club and, and running the shows and so I got to hang around the bar that's to me where the real show was I mean of course the comics were funny we had an audience they're laughing it was great but I'd listen to these comics at the bar hanging out and they're cutting each other down. They're making jokes. They're writing jokes. Things are going on. You know, you didn't know who you're going to see there on any night. I mean, I'd come into work and I'd open the club. We'd be there. And as the club filled up, I'd look at the bar and sitting there would be Larry David, Bill Hicks, Dave Attell, the wonderful Dave Attell, my, one of my favorite He was my door guy. He was my, he was my right-hand man. Helped me out. <laughs> when, was,
0: <laughs> uh, when was Danny Aiello the doorman? That, that was, was in the
1: 60s. That's before my oh, time. Oh, was that the
0: 60s? Oh, man, I yeah. thought that was like, wow. Yeah, he was one of the original... Because Joe Pisco, I think, was a doorman too, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, a lot. of I'm <laughs> Keenan
1: Irie Wayans. You hear about all these people who are door guys. It's one way to get your foot in the club. I mean, that's why, again, that's why Dave Attell worked with me. And that's why you hear so many of these other famous comedians and behind-the-scenes people, they got in working the improv as part of the staff. You were there, and then if you could get some stage time and the door probably at some point. Sure. Hey, can I get like five minutes, three minutes at
0: 1 a.m., 2 a.m.?
1: <laughs> well, that's what they would do, you know. And one of my favorite stories, again, with Dave Attell as my door guy. It was right before he broke. It really, he was still working on his act. He was doing—everybody he, he was, was very impressed with this guy. And I remember—here's a story. Okay, here's one of my stories. Larry David— creator of Seinfeld, Kirby Your Enthusiasm, come on, everybody comedy knows who Larry David is. He also, that I didn't know at the time, I was new, he had a reputation that if he went on stage and the audience wasn't getting him, or he didn't really like the feeling he got from the audience, he would just drop the microphone and say, heck with, screw you, or close to it, and walk off the stage. I heard that he actually went up a couple of times and looked at the audience, didn't even do
0: any of his act, and said, nah, <laughs> and then walked off.
1: What? The, how well, can you even do that? That's well, the, amazing. The, the first time it happened to me, because, again, he had been on, by this time, he was known, okay? And so when a celebrity came in, anyone came in, I would ask them, I felt it was my job. I would go up, Rodney Dangerfield, um, uh, Richard Lewis, anyone, whoever mm-hmm. it was, they come in and say, would you like to go say hello to the audience? And so with Larry would come in, and I remember asking him a lot. And he was a regular guy. We played softball together. He was on our improv softball team. He was our first baseman, by the way. So he was part of this, the group hanging out. And, and I would ask him once in a while, you know, did you want to say hello to the audience? Want to do something? And he never really did. He's like, no, he's just kind of hanging out. He's doing some stuff. And then I remember one night he came over to me, and he, says, he said he'd like to go on. He had some material he wanted to try. I was like, great, this is cool. I'm going to get to see Larry David. How good is this? So I gave him a slot in the show. I said, all right, you go on, you know, next. And I'm standing there watching him. And he went up on stage. He was up there for about a minute, minute and a half. I think I gave him like a 10 or 15, 20 minute set. I don't remember anymore. Anyway, the, he didn't like the audience. And again, he said, screw you. Oh, <laughs> and he dropped man. the microphone. He walked off stage and I'm standing in the back and I'm going, ah, my heart was going. Ah, and, I understand. <laughs> and he just walked right by me. Didn't say a word, I'm going. Oh, and I had an empty stage. And the one thing you learn in the comedy business, you do not want an empty stage. So the first thing I could do, who's standing next to me, was Dave Vittell. I grabbed him. said, Dave, go up, go up. And and he said, sure. He was happy to do it. He ran up on stage. Yeah, that's nuts. Uh, and then when Dave Vittell got off, he came over and he says, oh yeah, Dave, I kind of forgot to tell you that he he's kind of known for doing that. You have to have somebody ready to go up.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that I mean, that was his thing. That was, uh, you know, I mean, he was working... He was a writer at SNL for a short time, got fired from that, right? It was, I'm I'm sure stuff like that was happening all the time, especially if you have guys like Andy Kaufman and people
1: coming in. You don't know quite what's going to happen, right? At times. Bud's famous story about Andy Kaufman, when he came in, again, this is way before my time, but Andy used to do that foreign man voice he did on the TV show Taxi, and somebody called Bud from Long Island or somewhere, Andy Kaufman had been performing. He says, you've got to see this guy. You got to see it. He says, all right, send him in. So he came in and he used that accent on Bud. You know, thank you very much. From Bud said, where are you from? He says, I'm from a small island in the middle of the Cypress Sea or something. There's no islands where he was saying it. It was all made up stuff. And Bud believed him. And he said, oh, I put him on stage. So he watched him and Andy wasn't doing that great. The audience was kind of like, well, this guy's too weird, man. What's going on with it? And the next thing he says, I'd like to do my Elvis Presley. He turned around and, and, and it's, you And know, he turned around and boom, and he did a perfect spot on Elvis impersonation, singing Heartbreak Hotel or something. And then he goes, thank you very much. And he walks on. and Bud said he knew he'd been had. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. He knew he'd been had. And he just became, you know, and that was one of his all-time favorites. And I will say Freddie Prinz was also. We've done a show on Freddie, Freddie, yeah. Freddie Prince this year. And that's someone who Bud was also very close with. I think he had him on stage when Freddie was like 16 years old. Yeah, the early 70s at that point, right? hmm Yeah, I know he had to get out and go to class in the morning. He had to get him out early so he could go to school the next day. That New York improv was very, very special as far as the comics you would see. Again, I mean, that's where I met George Carlin. He came in to try new material. It's where one night we, we looked, we saw this guy walking across the street, like in the rain, with no umbrella. He had a jogging suit on. It was half zippered down in the front, so there was this big naked belly hanging out. My two door guys, Dave Attell and Chris Murphy comedy coach in New York City, they saw this guy coming and we were in Hell's Kitchen, which was a, you know, a very seedy area. So you had to be careful you know, who might wander in. You know, we, we could lock that door pretty quick if we had to. Yeah, they saw right. this guy coming and they said, oh my gosh. You know, so they, went, they started to lock the door so this guy wouldn't come in the club. And I'm looking out, I go, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. I said, that's Rodney. Oh, no. And we looked, at it was Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. <laughs> so he Just comes looking in. like a mess. Well, a he, he wasn't the type of guy that would ever get really dressed up or worry about how he looked or anything like that. He was bouncing around. He came in for a drink. He stood there talking to us. I said, Rodney, do you want to go on and say hello to the audience? And he looked. I remember that night he said no because it was like a Sunday night or something. It wasn't that filled— and then, but he would come back quite often. And a lot of times I did get him to go on. So he'd look, if it was a full audience. In the workout, in the track suit? Yeah, in the track suit.
0: Yeah, it was. So he usually wore the, the, the tie and the jacket. But he was always a
1: mess. And yeah. I, I say that in a very nice way, but it was Rodney Dangerfield. I mean, the guy was a legend too, come on. Very, very first Saturday night as manager of the club. And Silver was still there with me holding my hand. Again, we could stay up until four in the morning and we normally did because we always, the improv had, a line around the block, people trying to get in. And we would do three shows on a Saturday night. And I remember it was, had to be about 3.30 in the morning, had to be about quarter to four in the morning. We're winding down, okay? And the door opened up and Professor Erwin Corey. Oh, my gosh. Remember him? A disheveled man. And yes. About, yes. He comes walking in and Silver goes, Irwin. He goes, hi. And she goes, would you like to go on stage? He goes, Sure. And so we put Professor Irwin Corey on stage. It's going on 4 o'clock in the morning in New York City. He probably stayed up there until 5 in the morning. Was there like, a crowd? Oh, w- yeah, I think, of course they stayed. He was like a known comedian. They stayed. That double speak he did was tremendous. Oh, it was yeah. Like, it was just great
0: stuff, man.
1: <laughs> it was but insanity. The one, thing I, the one thing I do want to point out, I didn't see, you know, some of the older ones like that, like Rodney. And, you know, George Carlin was established, and Professor Irwin Corey, some of them. But, you know, the thrilling thing about the New York Club was the, the younger acts, at that time that would come in, you know, we would only book these shows up until about midnight. We started the show about nine. We'd only schedule comedians up until midnight. Then after that, it was whoever was hanging around the bar. I could walk around and say, you know, do you want to do five minutes? Do you want to do some time? So again, like, you know, all the established acts and really the, the newer comics would come in about 1130. They'd start just sitting in the bar. They'd all start looking at me <laughs> like, you know, I'm here. I'm here. And I remember walking around with David Tell and I said, uh, who's that guy sitting over there? And this was, this was back in the 80s. I said, who's that guy sitting over there? He says, that's Jon Stewart. I said, oh, is he funny? He goes, yeah, he's pretty good. So I went over <laughs> to him. I said, would you want to do five minutes? He said, yeah. And so he got up. But the ones who hung around at that time were like Jon Stewart. I remember uh, Rosie O'Donnell, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, Sarah Silverman. They were all just hanging around and waiting to go up, see if they can get five minutes kind of thing. But that's how dedicated they were. And that's why I'm so impressed with those people because they were there. Yeah. And not just, you know, by this time, there were other clubs they could go to also. I lived in Manhattan, and for 13 years, I was there. And you refer to people who didn't live in Manhattan as bridge and tunnel people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah, right. these clubs, you know, on the weekends, you know, you'd have your regulars come in, and they want to watch a show, and you don't know who you're going to see on a Monday, Tuesday night. Jay Leno could drop in, you know, anyone. But on the weekends, we would book, you know, solid shows, because we knew we were going to get the bridge and tunnel people in. Yeah. And the tourists. Yeah. So, you know, I've got, the, those are my, what you would call A acts. <laughs> they had yeah. the clubs at A, B, and C acts. You know, C acts were yeah. the ones building their way up, and B acts would be a little bit better. A acts were your Jerry Seinfeld and Bill Maher and Roseanne and these kind of people. Just, they're going to be home runs. They're going to work. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. What I started noticing, we all did sometime in the late 80s, we weren't getting so much of the bridge and tunnel people anymore because they had comedy clubs on Long Island. They had comedy clubs in New Jersey. They had comedy clubs in Philadelphia, places they were coming to New York City from. Well, the inevitable crash
0: was gonna happen in the 90s after that boom. I mean, it was nowhere to go except down. Did you notice a change? Because you were still there in the early
1: 90s. Yeah, well, I was. I, I did notice a change. And the thing with me, the other thing I noticed too, is I got sick and tired of cold weather. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) People say, why'd you go to Los Angeles? I really got tired of being cold. I really did. And it was just time for, (laughs) I'd been in Manhattan for so, and I love New York City. I still consider myself to be a New Yorker, even though I grew up, you know, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. But yeah, it came time to, I felt for me, I I wanted to go to Los Angeles. I really wanted to give it a shot out there in Hollywood. I got lucky again because, you know, I went from LA to uh, the Hollywood Improv. You know what, Tom? I think it's time we start wrapping up this episode. I hope everyone tunes in next week because we're going to keep talking about the improv. We're going to do a part two next week. Wow. This has been fun. Part one has had me gripped. I can't wait for part two. (laughs) Had you gripped? Okay. All (laughs) right. Well, listen, on that note, I'm going to say thank you to co-host Tom McGallis. Thank you, Dave. And it's been fun, as always. I'll see you next time when we continue talking more about the Improv Comedy Clubs. Until then, I'm Dave Schwenson. You've been listening to What's So Funny. And until then, keep laughing.
0: What's So Funny is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Producer, Sarah Wilgrove. And audio engineer, Eric Koltnow.
2: History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small.